the, the DNA upon conception in that baby is set. It's already determined whether the baby is going to be like a good-looking hunk of a man like James here in the middle or like a guy like me, um, whether uh, he's going to be somebody who is really cool like Wombat or somebody who's artistic uh, like back, uh, back in the back. Some other people in here I know are, have you have particular things that make up who you are? That's already determined before you even pop out of your mom. And we are, what we're doing right now in the summer, before this baby that we call Doxa is born, is birthed or launched, like the mother launches the baby out, so we're going to be launched out one day, and before that happens, we're determining and setting up our DNA. This is who we are, this is what we're going to be about. I keep saying, I can't tell you exactly what we're going to be doing or what we're going to look like five years from now. I have some ideas, I have particular things I want it to look like, but I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be you're going to look like, because some of it depends upon you guys, like who God brings to be a part of this thing that we call Doxa. But I can tell you that we are going to be about four things. No matter what we're doing, no matter how we're doing it, no matter where we're doing it, there's going to be four big ideas that we're about. The first of which is Jesus. And that seems like a very obvious thing, right? That's what church is about. That's what Christianity is about. We call Christianity because he was Jesus Christ, right? But I think the problem is it's not quite as obvious as it should be. There's, there's a lot of elements to church, right? There's a lot of stuff that has to happen to keep church going, to keep church rolling. And it's very easy to get distracted. We get distracted by a lot of different things. We go down a list. You, if, I, if I ask you right now, tell me some things that churches get distracted by or Christians in churches get distracted by other than Jesus. You can throw out dozens of things. But we're going to be... We're going to be militaristic about keeping Jesus as the big idea that we're about. He's the one who created the world. He's the one that created you. He's the one that created me. We were created by him and for him. And he's called us to live our lives back to him and worship. And we won't know joy or peace or hope or anything fully until we have experienced that. And that is the second component of worship. That anything that you or I find to be of value, we give our lives to it. How many people in here like football? Anybody in here like football? How many people like a particular team? Anybody like anybody like uh, that team in Colombia? The team that shall not be named? Anybody pull for that team? Woo! Yeah. Anybody pull for the uh, the good guys in orange? Anybody pull for any pro teams in here? Anybody? Any Bronco fans in here or Cowboy fans? Yeah. Panther fans? The thing is, have you ever noticed how crazy people get about their sports teams? About particularly anywhere in America, but in the South, about football. Have you guys noticed how crazy and intense that gets? Do you know why? Have you ever noticed that? That whatever you're talking about, your team, you say, we really struggled today. Have you ever caught yourself having phrases like that? We, we won the game today. Why are you identifying yourself 
with the other guys that actually got out in the field and played. Because you have found there to be value in football. You found there to be value in your team. And the more value you find in them, the more you give yourself to them. You buy the clothes and you wave the banners and you put the flag in front of your house and you 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 cheer for them and you get up all like in a game. I caught myself in this terrible, terrible Clemson game uh, years ago. Calvin Johnson was a, a freshman playing for Georgia Tech. And there had to be there had to be five things that had to happen in order for Clemson to lose the game. The game was down to the wire. I have no idea why I'm telling you this, but this is just my pain of being a Clemson fan. I thought I would share it with you if you have not experienced it. Five things had to happen, and they all had to happen in order for them, for us, us, to lose that game, right? And all five things happened in a row, and we lost the game. And I about lost my mind in my living room. I, I was throwing pillows. I was going crazy. I actually scared Megan. Megan came out and looked at me with these big eyes like, you are actually scaring me right now. Do you know why I was reacting that way? Because I had put value in Clemson football. Which is, if you're going to put value in any football team, don't put it in Clemson. Choose, choose Southern Cal. Choose Florida. Just take it from a Clemson fan. Choose another team that will not provide heartbreak for you like Clemson has. But when you give yourself to something and you find it to be of value to you, you worship it. You respond to it. You become like it. And when we find Jesus to be the one that you were truly created for, the one the one who formed you, the one who created you for himself, then you find joy and peace and security and value, and you cannot help but to respond and worship to him. And all of life becomes worship. All of life. There becomes no difference between what we call sacred and what we call secular. Your job, your home, your, your marriage, your, how you try to raise your kids, the way, the way that you drive on Highway 501 on Friday afternoons at 5 o'clock becomes worship to him. And then the next thing that happens is that Jesus changing our identity and value and we're us responding in worship causes us to be able to live in true community. We are more connected as a people than we've ever been before. Technology is in place to connect us in so many ways. You can know who's buying milk right now. You can know who's making cookies right now. You can see a picture of somebody hanging out on the couch, right? We know what's going on. We are far more connected than we've ever been. But Americans are far more lonely than we've ever been before. The statistics prove it to be true. And the thing that separates us from each other is the fact that we have to try to portray a certain persona to each other. And it's only in the power of the gospel and finding a new identity and new value in Jesus that we're able to pull the mask down and really be who we are. Because here's the truth. I know some of you guys pretty well. I know some of you guys fairly well. And I just met some of you guys. And I can tell you something that's true. You guys are a sorry lot. You guys are a mess. 
I can say that with all certainty because I'm a mess and because that's the state of all of humanity. But we try to hide it and portray a different picture to the other people around us because we want them to think better about us because we find our value and security from their opinion of us. But when you find your identity and security in what Jesus thinks about you, when you find it in the bedrock and the anchor of what he did for us on our behalf on the cross, when he exchanged our sin for his righteousness, when he exchanged our impending doom for his glory forever at the right hand of his father to be a part of his family, when you discover that to be your identity, what does it matter what each other thinks? And I can be free to be just the mess that I am with you. Because God gets glory out of that. He doesn't get glory if I try to put on a good face with you. He gets glory if I say, this is just how big a mess I am. And Jesus saved me. He today, right now, is standing between the, between the wrath of God that I deserve and who I am. Today, he is doing that. Isn't he an amazing person, an amazing human, an amazing God to be in that position to do that? That makes me worship him. It makes you worship him. And it makes us a real people. So when other people come into our gatherings, whether it's a gathering like this or it's a small group meeting in a house, and they see how real we are, they see us not putting up a front to each other, then they can relate to us and they know that we're not full of Full of, full of, whatever, you fill in the blank, whatever is acceptable for you to say here. We'll say, we'll say, uh, yeah, well, you know, you guys know what I'm saying. Because you are real. And it's so much more accessible to them. And they see the glory of Jesus lived out in our midst as we accept each other. Not because of how good you are or how cool you are to me. But I accept you because of the grace of God that he has shown to you. And he has shown to me through Jesus Christ. And then, you know what happens next? You have a community of people who are worshiping Jesus with their lives. Continually growing into, in, into his likeness. But full of mess. Who are constantly astounded by his goodness to us, do you know what happens? We cannot help but together as a community of people to live on mission. To live on mission. For the past two weeks we talked about how the, the church is called to be like a city within a city. We talked about how a city is made up of a lot of different a lot of different people, a lot of different houses. And so when Jesus said a city set on the hill can't be hidden, he's painting the picture of you're miles and miles away in the middle of the desert. It's pitch black dark. You don't have water. You're out of food. You're about to lose hope. But you see a light flickering up on a hill out in the distance. And you suddenly have hope. And that light isn't a big giant lighthouse. It's not like super Christian Randy Goff who's just up here to show you just how awesome I am. So come to me. No, it's a bunch of little lights. A lot of windows in individual houses flickering. It's a community of people who are living and eating and drinking and laughing 
and working and raising their children together. And you see it in the darkness provides hope. Not some super Christian, but all of us together. We're a city. So what that means is that God has called all of us to be pastors. Like the pinnacle of Christianity is not for you to be in full-time ministry. The pinnacle of Christianity is for you to do whatever God has uniquely designed and gifted you to do. And so that may be an attorney, that may be a federal marshal, that might be that might be a teacher, it might be somebody who flew Air Force One back in the back row. It might be somebody who like deals out drugs to people legally uh, down in Myrtle's Inlet. <laughs> He's a pharmacist. Let's just make that clear. <laughs> or it may be playing music in front of a group of like us or, or at a restaurant at the beach on a Thursday night. It makes all of that a mission. You take the unique gifts and talents and motivations God has given you and you live life on mission with that. You do your job with excellence. You excel in it. You do it with, with integrity, showcasing the beauty and the grace of God, showcasing a different family that you're a part of, a different culture, and a different set of values that you come out of in the middle of the city that is operating in darkness. A city within a city. And then last week we talked about how we're a city within the city, but we're not cloistered off by ourselves. So there's sort of two camps in the history of the church. There's one camp that says, look, we're supposed to be a city that's like has giant walls up around it and nobody can come in unless they know the secret code. And nobody ever goes out because out there in that part of the city, it's, it's dirty, it's messy, it's gross. You meet people who don't think like you think. And so stay here in this section with the giant walls with people who look like you and think like you and act like you. And we're all going to be comfortable here. We're just going to wait until Jesus comes back. But then there's other people, so that's the people who focus on the, the separateness of the church. This is a whole other group of people who focus on the sentness of the church. God, Jesus sent us on a mission, right? We've already talked about that. He said, go and make disciples. And so they say, look, we got to get out there. we got to do the deal. And they focus so much on being sent that they don't look any different than the city that they're in. They blend in, with blend in with everybody else. There's no appreciable quality or quantity, a quantitative difference in the way that they think and act and feel. But God has called us to be a city within a city for the benefit of the city around us. We are called to be separate because we have a different set of values. We're a part of a different family. But we're called to be sent in the middle of that city. And so tonight, I'm just going to run through... Um, the book of Acts <laughs> and and we're going to just look at um, kind of what happens how does Jesus change a community and we're going to look at the history of church planting um, in the book of Acts as sort of the tool that God has used since the beginning of the church I um this morning, I was okay. This morning, um, Kitra and Dale stood up in front of the uh, the church that they've been members of for eight years. That's uh, the church that they got married in, 
It's the church that they have uh, raised their kids so far in. Lots of relationships, lots of background, lots of history. And they stood up in front of this group of people and said, we love you guys, but we feel called to do something else. We feel called to plant a church. And I was sitting back there watching that, watching how the people were reacting, watching how much they loved them and thinking how, wow, this is a very, this is a very big and a very difficult decision for anybody to make. I made that decision. Um, it's been something that God has been weighing upon my heart for, for years and years, but really brought it back to a head um, about two and a half years ago. And all of us, if God calls you to be a part of this thing that we call doxa, this um, embryonic baby, um, we all have different stories that bring us here. All different ways, all different kinds of motivations. And so we're just going to look at a few different ways and a few different motivations for church planning that, um, that we see in the book of Acts. So let's first look at... Uh, Well, let's look at Acts chapter 1. This is before Jesus ascends into heaven. Verse 6. So when they, that's the disciples and Jesus, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Think about these disciples that Jesus had called. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were going out, doing their own thing. And Jesus came to them and said, come, follow me. And they followed him for three years. They thought, they got into this church planning deal because they thought it was going to be awesome. They thought it was going to be like, um, like, like, it was going to be a really cool gig. Because they thought Jesus was going to take over Israel. And was going to forcibly kick the Romans out. And be like, I'm, I'm the new king, guys. And they thought, if we get on this early, we're going to be, like, we're going to be the upper crust. Right? We're going to be, we're going to be the inside circle of this deal. So we're in. This is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be really cool. But what they soon discovered or discovered over time is that the the path that Jesus had went straight to the cross. And at that point, this whole thing, they they're second guessing, they kind of they scatter, right? Peter even denies him. And now Jesus is risen back from the dead and they're like they're just kind of getting a feel for what's going on. And he pulls them back together and he says, all right, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I want you guys to go and wait in Jerusalem. They discovered that this church planting thing wasn't the pathway to glory and excitement. It was going to cost a lot. 
they went and they hid back in the upper room. They were afraid. I've been afraid. Part of my path to this point is that God had to kick me in my rear end because I was afraid. I was afraid if I put myself out and said this is what God's called me to do, that I would fall on my face, that it wouldn't work, that this thing wouldn't come together. I still don't know if it's going to come together. I still don't have any assurances. But one time Jesus asked his disciples, whenever everybody had left, because Jesus had just said something really kooky and crazy. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is a great way to, like, empty the room. And he asked his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where else can we go? I think implicit in that is he's saying, if there was another way, yes, I would leave right now. I'd be out of here because, frankly, Jesus, you're wigging me out right now about this whole blood and body and eating it and drinking it. I don't quite understand you. But nobody else has the words of eternal life. Coming back into this corner. They, so they wait. What else are they going to do? They wait in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit shows up. And these cowering, weakling, uneducated men stand up boldly in front of a crowd and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and looks them in the eye, looks the crowd in the eye and said, this is the Jesus that, by the way, you killed. This is the Jesus that, by the way, you voted that you'd rather have him crucified than the real bad guy. The guy who deserved it, the guy who had it coming. Let's look at uh, Acts, uh, Acts 4. I think... Um, so, again, this path is not an easy path. Uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, and as they, that's uh, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word Believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's a pretty successful day in the life of a young church. Um, I, I would have no problem. That was the path Jesus had for us. Except, look at this next part that happens now. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and this is when they're before the council, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. By the way, I hope, I hope Doxa is known for several things, but my, my giant hope for Doxa is that, that when, they, when people come around us in our midst, and they're around us individually, they would know that we're a people who've been with Jesus. But seeing the man, so they, so they see, I'll just tell you what happened. So they, so they say, what are we going to do? A man was really healed. 
well, we can't have them going about teaching the name of Jesus. So they threatened them. They said, if you, do, if you teach the name of Jesus anymore, it's not going to go well for you. So we're going to let you off because we just were part of like healing a man who was lame for 40 years. But they'll never do it again. And then look what they did, the disciples. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. Listen to what they say. They don't say, God, we pray you would vote another authority in. They don't say, God, we pray that you would help us to get by and not, not have to endure any suffering. They say, this is what we want. Look upon your servants. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed for the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't say, God, let this be easy. They said, God, this is going to be hard. Help us not to be wimps. Give us boldness and stretch out your hand because if anything is going to happen, it's going to happen because you move your hand. And look what happens. Now the full number of those who believed, this is so beautiful, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were, was his own, but they had everything in common. By the way, you know how they did that? The gospel, what we were just talking about earlier. If you find your comfort, security, identity in Jesus, what is, what are, what's the car that you drive or the house that you live in or the belongings that you own? What does it matter? And with great power, and by the way, again, do you guys, like, when people from the outside were looking at that, what kind of effect do you think it had on them when they saw a group of people living that kind of life? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. They did so. They did that joyfully. And then and then look down talks about how the apostles were arrested 
they were beaten, and they were freed. And when they left, when they left, they rejoiced. Verse 41, chapter 5. Look at verse 40, sorry. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Look at that kind of life. And then look down in chapter 8. This is after Stephen is stoned. He's the first martyr in the history of the church. That says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Some of us uh, have come to the point of hopefully being a part of this team as because you've been, you've been scattered. Uh, you've just moved here or uh, whatever, something happened at your old church or wherever you've been and you've been You've been scattered out. And sometimes God forces us into the the new era that he has, the new mission that he has for us, because because we're forced to, because he forces our hands. He, He backs us into a corner and causes us to do what we would not have done otherwise, because it got too uncomfortable to stay where you were. Ever been in that situation? You're just... You don't really want to move on, but you're, it's too uncomfortable where you are to stand still. Like something's pricking you. You just got to move forward. Sometimes God moves us on into church planning that way. But then look in um, in verse in chapter thirteen. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, some God, whose name starts with the M, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down and talked about their first missionary journey. Sometimes we embark on a new journey, the new mission that God has for us because we're sent. Because God, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts, speaks to the people around us and says, this is what I've called them to do. And the church that we've been a part of for eight years calls us forward and they lay their hands on us and they pray for us and they commission us and send us out. And look at what, let's look at just one example of when they were planning a church, and then I'm going to try to bring this point in for a landing. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 19. 
Paul's in Lystra. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Look, um, when God's called us to mission, whether you're going to be a part of Doxa or going to be somewhere else, God's called you to mission. Um, it's, it's not the easiest, most comfortable life. It's a life of sacrifice. But it's a great adventure. And we're on the same team with the one who created the heavens and the earth. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he didn't even take a break. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, no kidding, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as we're embarking on planting Doxa Church, we're following the line of people that God has called to plant churches. It's very natural to the believers. And, and here are, I just want to go over three things that happen. Whenever, whenever a people come together and say, God has sent us on mission, like Paul and Barnabas and Philip and all the other apostles and the people that were scattered to all the cities, when they went to each city that they went to, and God sent them there, some with, by themselves and someone with a team, this is what happens. When the gospel shows up in power among a people who are living for Jesus and their life is a life of worship and they're living in community and they're on mission, the first thing that happens is nominal Christians are converted. Uh, this is something you see a lot in the South, right? Uh, is this is an interesting area because a lot of people from the Northeast mixing in with the Bible Belt. It's kind of a, a weird mix. But the, for the people who grew up in the South or grew up around here, uh, church is a part of our culture. That's what you do on Sunday mornings, right? You go to church and you sing the songs, you drop a few bucks in the offering, and you feel you leave and you feel better about yourself. That's and you believe in the Bible. You believe in God and Jesus, but there's no appreciable difference about the way that you approach life than anybody else. And so the first thing that happens when the gospel shows up and the Holy Spirit shows up in the midst of a team of people who are on mission is nominal Christians who have thought, like, like I'm on the roll, I believe it, I'm, I'm on the team, right? They discover that's not the team they're on. They discover, like, I, I like Christianity because it's comfortable and I'm familiar with it and I like thinking that I'm a good person, but they're awakened to the fact that there's a far difference between believing something with your head and having God's Spirit awaken your heart so that you see and savor and love and worship Jesus from the depths of your being. It's the difference between me telling you that, um, that Gino's 
over on Forest Brook has the best pizza in the area and trying to describe it to you and me taking you there and letting you bite into a slice of heavenly goodness. That's the difference between knowing something and savoring and tasting something. And that's the first thing that happens is nominal Christians are awakened. They, they become believers. They're converted. They recognize, I really was not a believer. But now I, I love and worship Jesus from the depths of my being. Being a part of a church and living life the way I'm living is not because I'm checking things off a list or because I have to. I get to. It's a joy for me to do so. That's how the disciples were able to be joyous after they had just been beaten. That's how. Not because they had to, but because they got to be beaten for the sake of the one who had saved them and brought them from darkness to light. The second thing that happens is uh, sleepy Christians get woken up. We all have a tendency to fall asleep. You guys know the hymn... um, um, which one is it? Uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, my God. That's, that's still our heart. Even if you're a Christian, that's still our heart. Where life, the world, family, work, it's, it's like a siren song. It's constantly enticing us just to go to sleep. And just, you guys ever been driving down the interstate in the middle of the night? We're maybe on a warm afternoon, and all of a sudden you pass mile marker 143, and you don't remember seeing any mile markers since mile marker 100, and you're like, oh, jump, what just happened? What, did I sleep? Have I been sitting here? Were my eyes open? How did, this, how did I get here? I had no idea how it happened. And life has a tendency to lull us into that kind of existence. And all of a sudden you wake up, and 5, 10, 20 years has passed you by and you have little to show for it. And when the gospel shows up by the power of the Holy Spirit on a, with a team of people on mission, people who have fallen asleep, maybe it's us in this room. Some of us have fallen asleep at the wheel. And the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shows up and it wakes you up. And again, you see and savor Jesus for the one that he is. Nominal Christians become true Christians. Sleepy Christians are wakened up. And then the third thing that happens is people who are outside the church become attracted. They're not attracted because we have clever slogans or we have an awesome video montage before somebody gets up to talk. They're not attracted because fire erupts out of the stage. Somebody asked me a few months ago, what is your church going to be like? I said, well, it's going to be a lot of gold. (laughs) There's going to be a choir wearing white or maybe blue. And, when the, and they're going to sing songs and when it gets to the crescendo I'm going to erupt out of the middle of the stage from an air cannon 
<laughs> and land on the stage in a white suit, glistening, like this. But you know, as awesome as that might sound, if you're a TBN fan, as, as, as awesome as that might sound, no offense if you like TV, I'm just saying, there's a lot of gold on that station, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> As awesome as fireworks and fire and coming in on a motorcycle or a zip line or erupting out of the middle of the stage may be. I don't have any problem if you want to go start a church that does that. But here's the thing. That's not what attracts people. That might draw a crowd. <clears throat> that might get a lot of people to come to see, like, what are they going to do this week? But what attracts people to Jesus is seeing a community of people where not one in our midst is needy. Seeing a group of people who are so real with each other, they don't have to wear a mask of fakeness. And they let their mess and jump and just put it out on the table. They see a group of people who live a kind and a caliber and a flavor of life that is full of sacrifice, but it's not sacrifice that they have to do while gritting their teeth. It's a sacrifice of joy that Jesus would be glorified. That's what we're trying to do here at Doxa. We're not the first ones on the block to do it. We didn't come up with some clever thing. We're just following along the history of what God has done in the history of the church as he plants churches in communities like cities set on a hill that can't be hidden for his glory and for our joy. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship that God tonight. And we're going to think about how we are joining with Philip and Peter and Paul and Barnabas and all the people who have come before us who counted their lives as nothing for the glory and joy of being Christ. We're going to praise the one that they worship as well. In the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace toward us. It should continually blow our minds. Our, our circuit board should just continually short because there's just not enough computing power. Not, there's not enough RAM there to process all of your goodness to us. It is flabbergasting. And God, I pray that you would, that you would cause us individually and you would cause us corporately together, the people that you're calling to be a part of, God, so that you would, that you would, just as the disciples pray, that you would grant us the boldness and that you would move your hand in power. We ask the same thing tonight. We ask that you would grant us boldness that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us and upon this community 
that the people driving up and down this road, the people who are living in Carolina Forest and Surfside and Myrtle Beach and Conway and yes, even Loris and Ainer, that they would come to know you just like we have. 